This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of Railroad Model Craftsman magazine. Sharpen your modeling skills with in-depth features and how-tos each month with Railroad Model Craftsman from Karsten's Publications. Show. I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm Jim Martin. Thanks for joining us. Today's show embraces both art and technology. I'll be getting technical with my two guests, and you'll be getting artsy with another noted Danish modeler, Trolls Kirk. I've been a fan of Trolls for quite a while now. He'll be discussing the effective use of color in all aspects of layout building. But while I'm busy collecting my wits, let's listen to Trevor as he, along with Seth Newman and Chris Drome, discuss how to miniaturize radio frequency identification for the train room. Railroads are all about logistics. Since the beginning, railroads have used a variety of methods to track equipment, from handwritten paperwork to automated computerized systems. Today, North American railroads use AEI, a car tracking system built around radio frequency identification. What's that? Well, we've all experienced RFID. How many times have you gone to a store and as you're about to walk out the door with your purchases, an alarm goes off? You go back to the counter and the cashier deactivates the overlook security tag. Well, that system is probably built around RFID. It's also used to reunite lost pets with their owners, in building access cards, to collect payments on toll roads, pay transit fares, and much more. RFID essentially consists of two pieces of technology. The first is a small, inexpensive tag attached to the thing that one wants to identify and track. The second is a scanner to read each tag. In stores, it's the tall pillars you walk between as you exit the shop. The advantage is RFID is a wireless, non-contact technology. This means that readers don't have to actually see the tag. The tag just needs to be within the electromagnetic field generated by the reader. On modern railroads, equipment fitted with an RFID tag is tracked as it passes important points along its journey, such as at yards or junctions. But I hear you asking, what does this have to do with model railroads? Well, some hobbyists are starting to experiment with RFID on their layouts. My guests today, Seth Newman and Chris Drome, are installing RFID on Seth's HO scale layout, which represents the Union Pacific in California's East Bay area in the late 1990s. Seth is a regular on the Model Railway show, including an appearance on Episode 9 to talk about the auto plant on his layout. If you didn't hear that interview, you can find a link on our site that will take you to the archive show at Train Life. Seth and Chris, welcome aboard. Well, thanks. Good to be back. Hi, Trevor. Now, you're an operations enthusiast and, in fact, a former vice president of the Operations SIG, so I know you're keen to replicate the activities of a real railroad on your layout. What aspect of prototype railroading are you trying to emulate with RFID? Well, the tracking of cars really is the issue. In fact, if you spend time trackside, you may have occasionally heard a dispatcher or somebody from the operations department on the channel asking a conductor to verify that a car is or is not actually on the train because they got a read from it on the way out of a yard. So the railroad uses this to quality check, make sure that what's supposed to be in the concept really is there. What we're trying to do is to actually simplify something that our clerk needs to do, which is make a list of cars in standing order as a train comes into the yard so that you can then provide a switch list telling the yard crews what to do with the cars. In the past, we've had to go out and essentially do it manually. You walk out, get in the middle of the yard area and start writing down the road number and road name of every car in the consist, and then you go back and look up where those cars are supposed to go. With this scheme, we now just open a browser screen, find the read we're looking for, it's timestamp by time and location, and then 
print the list. And at that point, you now have the list and can just go fill it out very quickly. And it's removed a whole lot of time from the process where everybody's standing around waiting for something to happen and improve the accuracy because we don't transpose numbers and things like that because we obviously are just looking it up in a database. So previously then you were managing this function on the layout with a, what, a paper switch list and a pen or? Precisely. The clerk essentially was going out and being in the car knocker, you know, maybe on his ATV (laughs) rolling down the side of the train, writing down car numbers. Just like in the real world, this takes a lot of time. You know, if we can just get a read every time a train comes over the yard throat, all we need to do is just print out the last read. And now we've got our list. It's in standing order. It's accurate and really seems to have helped a lot. Obviously, the idea came from the prototype. This is something that the real railroads are using. But it's one thing to go and watch what the prototype does and then another to say, you know, I'm going to build my own RFID system and put it on the layout. Where did that actual idea come from? What happened where you said, you know, why don't we try to do this in HO scale? That's a great question, Trevor. There had been some discussion of this on some of the more technical lists. And one of our local groups in Silicon Valley here, in fact, it's called the Silicon Valley Model Railroad Club, had done some experimentation with it a couple of years ago, and then I think mostly got distracted. But I thought because my railroad is very switch list oriented as opposed to car cart oriented that it would really solve this problem, as I say, of you know a train coming into the yard and then having to wait around for a while for the clerk to be able to assemble the appropriate information. So that was what our driver was. Chris, I know you have an email address that ends in .ca, which suggests that you're a fellow Canadian. Seth's down the San Francisco area. That would be a heck of a drive to work sessions, and I assume that you're not actually doing that commute. How did you end up joining Seth and his crew on this project? Yes, you're correct. I am originally from Canada. I've been living in the Bay Area now for about seven years or so. Before that, I was actually living in Japan. When I was studying in Japan, there wasn't much space to really pursue the hobby, so I I sort of fell out of the hobby for a long time. After resettling in North America, I've started to try to pick up some hobbies. I happened to live close to a a small hobby shop at the time, which unfortunately has gone out of business since then. But my wife and I were walking by one day and, and it was just sort of like, oh, I remember all of this stuff from when I was 13 or 14. And wouldn't it be really cool if I could start in the hobby for real this time? I designed a layout that I was going to pursue. And at an NMRA PCR meet, I asked Seth to give me some pointers on my layout, which he was very kind to do. And he even said, you know, because we were living so close to each other that he was doing work sessions. If I had time, why don't I drop by and see how the work sessions are? And he would continue to answer any questions that I had. In the course of those work sessions, he said, you know, he had been thinking of doing this RFID project and he had wondered if I was interested in helping out. Although my background wasn't really in the hardware side of things, which would be required for the RFID project, you know, I said, yeah, sure, I'll give it a shot and see how it goes. As I mentioned in the introduction, RFID requires two components, tags and readers, and I'd like to talk about how you're using those. First of all, you're installing the RFID tags on all the equipment. Can you describe how big a tag is and how many you actually need on the layout? The quick answer is one per car. There may be a few other things you want to do, but generally for every item you want to identify, you need to have a tag. There are a number of kinds of tags, uh, and you covered that well in the introduction. The style we settled on is 
what we refer to as the kitty chip, and it's the kind of form factor that you would have in your pet. They typically on a cat put it between her shoulders, and that way if she's ever picked up by animal control or whatever, they can just scan her and see if she you know, has an owner. Sure. Uh, I have those two so in, that, in the dogs, and they both have the microchips in the shoulder. And they're about the size of a grain of rice, aren't they? Exactly. It's 10 millimeters by, I think, 1.2, a little glass container. We found that taking that style of chip and mounting it on the truck parallel to the length of the car work very well because now we have a constant distance from the rail, which ensures that we get consistent reads. And you can use that technique really with any plastic truck. And we're about to do some experiments with metal trucks. We think it'll work. But what's nice is it keeps you away from metal weights in cars, which tend to interfere with reeds. And, of course, with different types of rolling stock, you would have different distances from the rail. You know, in some cars, you'd be able to hide it up in the brake rigging. You know, maybe not so much on tanks and some covered hoppers where all that equipment tends to be exposed at the ends. So rather than having to camouflage it here, you just hide it behind the side frame of the truck, and it's pretty much invisible. RFID also uses readers to capture the data on each tag. Can you describe what the readers look like and where you're installing these on the layout? We've been using one called the ID12. I think it's made by RF Innovations, but the easiest way to get one for our purposes is an electronic hobbyist supplier called SparkFun. The active piece of that really is a reader that's about an inch by an inch by perhaps three-sixteenths thick. What we've been doing with that is we just cut a hole under the rail at a yard throat. We insert that reader up from below, and what we actually did is we took a piece of flat O20 styrene to cover the area around the hole, and on the inside underneath, we just have a couple of strips that provide a locating point for the reader, and then we just put a piece of double-stick tape in, and it just holds it right up. It sounds a lot like installing a under-the-track magnet for uncoupling. Actually, I should have started with that analogy. That's exactly what it's like. Okay, so pretty easy to do then. What do you then do with the data that the readers are capturing off the tags on the layout? How does the whole system put it together and make something happen? There are a couple of pieces that we build that make the whole system. Obviously, the first piece is the little piece of hardware, which is based off of an Arduino board. And that actually contains the RFID reader, and it contains all of the hardware, which allows us to send the data to the computer where we can do some more interesting things with it. On the computer side of things, there's a couple of programs that I've written which munge the data as it's coming in from readers, and there's a database web service which allows you to interact with that data. On the database web service side, there's a roster of all of the rolling stock that you would have. So we spent some time inputting all of Seth's roster into the database. When we tagged all of his rolling stock, we had to go through the process of matching which tags were with which piece of rolling stock. Ultimately, what happens is the reader will pick up the fact that a tag has gone over its sensor. It will send that data to the computer. A separate program is running on that computer, which reads the data that was sent from the Arduino board, writes it to the hard disk, and then there's another program which reads it from the hard disk, does some various processing, maps it into a whole train consist, and puts that into a database. 
once it's in the database, then you can do all those other things like building switch lists and viewing your roster and things like that. So during a layout operating session, then the system builds a switch list and then will what print it out or display it on a screen for the crew to look at? That's correct. RFID is not generally a system that's sold at the retail level. It's designed for commercial enterprises, veterinary offices, things like that. Did that pose any challenges for sourcing the components you needed at a cost that you could justify for putting on a model railroad? That was an interesting challenge. Again, I didn't really have a strong background in the hardware side of things. So we did a little bit of poking around to see what kind of solutions we could possibly leverage. And we started off with looking at different kinds of wands that would be able to read RFID chips, We looked at other existing products that people are selling as solutions for warehouses and inventory systems and whatnot. And none of those seemed really all that appropriate for what we were trying to do. So I sort of decided to pick the minds of some of the people that I work with and see if there was any other alternative that might be a little bit more appropriate. And one of the guys mentioned that I might try looking into Arduino. And Arduino is an open source hardware prototyping system and it looked like it was something that was doable. I found some information online of other people playing with RFIDs to do different things like unlock doors, trigger certain events, etc. I started building a prototype with the Arduino system and fortunately we didn't run into any real serious issues because I think I would have been lost at that point. But everything worked out surprisingly well and we ended up with our first prototype. If I can add to that, one of the real big wins with Arduino is that several other individuals and groups in model railroading in the Bay Area had been doing different projects with Arduino, but there's a pretty good base of model railroad Arduino apps around here. So as Chris said, we didn't really need to draw on them, but it was very comforting to know that other people were playing with the same general stuff and had some expertise. So it turned out to be a natural for us. And so if you get into trouble with it, you can always ask them. And of course, when they start having Arduino problems, they're now coming to you because they're going to hear this on the show. (laughs) Well, ours works. So yes, (laughs) there you go. You heard it there, folks. His works. So have you had any issues with the readers or have they worked reliably? from day one when you installed them? I have not had a failure where, you know, you hadn't really done something strange, like uh, maybe take a car and flick it with your finger as fast as you possibly could. But in any normal speed read, it's been 100% reliable. No issues if you have the last truck of the car has a tag and the first truck of the next car has a tag, so there's two relatively close together, they don't bother it? That has not been a problem to date. And I suspect that the kitty chip is not necessarily the most sensitive chip available, and that has certainly been a factor in preventing dual reads. We've done a bunch of experimentation with reads on adjacent tracks by the first reader we had in place was the staging throat, and we just took a couple of pieces of track on either side and lined some cars up there opposite the reader and haven't had any difficulty with false reads. We have not yet had a lot of operational experience with the one on the active yard throat during the session, but as I say, at this point, it has not been an issue. We we don't expect it to be, but we'll obviously report back on that. Sure. In addition to the application that you're using it for, and I'll throw this out to both of you, when I thought about this, I thought, you know, this would be a great way for club layouts to track who owns what equipment on the layout or even Fremo modular groups because equipment gets scattered everywhere on those 
those. And at the end of the day, you need to put it all back in the right hands. It seems like using that sort of a system at a staging yard on a Fremo layout would be a great way to organize that and get it off the layout and back into the proper equipment boxes. Beyond what you're already doing with it on your layout, what sort of potential do you see for RFID in the hobby, doing other things? Well, certainly OSing is always an issue. You know, an operating layout, one issue you've always got the minute you put a dispatcher up is where the trains really are. And it's difficult because our distances are very compressed, which means that events that need to be reported happen much more often than they would in the real world. You know, in the real world, the dispatcher on the midnight trick might have six trains on this whole railroad and they're crossing detection blocks that are several miles long and maybe half hour travel time between stations where you'd care to report. In our world, that's happening in 30 seconds. So if everybody's having to get on the radio or the phone and report every 30 seconds, very quickly your communication channel backs up. So what we can do is simply put a reader at each town and a chip on every caboose and simply provide a way to associate each caboose with the train it's associated with. And then, you know, well, you get a little list, you know, caboose 4503 past Pleasanton. And now you know where the train is without having to have this cacophony of what are called OSs or position reports. You know, this is just so cool that I know a number of our listeners who model modern railroading will want to do this too. Any advice for them on how to get started? Are there news groups or online forums? where RFID for layouts is being regularly discussed? I think probably the JMRI forum is the best place to look. There was a specialized RFID for MR, I think that's what it was called, on Yahoo. I had tried to collect some information from RFID for MR, and there seems to be periods where there are spurts of activity, and then it dies off pretty quickly. I believe there was another more British-centric site as well. I believe it was a similar architecture as Arduino. Oh, the Merg guys? M-E-R-G? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll get the links into the episode guide for this show so that people can go and take a look at that stuff. Now, before you go, I have to ask, when you had the operating crews over, Seth, the first time the people who weren't involved with putting this together, the first time they saw this, did they declare you to be awesome or crazy? They loved it because what they got in the first session, the only thing that was working were the staging throats. So all of the trains that come out of staging have a switch list. And what they got was a nice printed switch list with just a little bit of handwritten chicken scratching on it. And they were delighted because they didn't have to deal with my handwriting. Perfect. Okay, well, listen, Seth Newman and Chris Strom, thanks for joining me on the Model Railway Show today and have fun with your RFID system. It sounds like a hoot. Thanks, Trevor. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Trevor. Thanks, guys. Trevor, this sounds like cutting-edge stuff. How quickly and how widely do you think it's going to catch on? Well, I think the interesting thing here is that a lot of younger people who are getting into the hobby are getting into it because they are interested in electronics. And they find that just like you can control a robot to do the battling robots thing, or you can control radio-controlled helicopters and things using electronics, model railroading is another outlet for using their computer skills. And the more things that we do, like introducing Introducing radio frequency identification to track cars. That's the stuff that appeals to the younger people who are already doing maybe electrical engineering programs at university, stuff like that. So I think this has real potential to make the hobby more relevant to 
people who would otherwise pursue a different hobby involving electronics. Are you going to adopt it for your layout? I don't think I really need to, actually. I'm sorry to say. Well, uh, yeah, maybe you should, you know. You it's could, out you, of you my could, era. You could catch me taking your rolling stock out the front door. I suppose I could. <laughs> well, that's what the guard dogs are for. Motion and Jack, the Border Collies, they will hang around here, and occasionally you'll hear them on the show barking in the background, usually when a courier is bringing me more trains. That reminds me of my last radio job, the guard dog. You know, they automated the station. It was down to just me and the guard dog. It was my job to feed the dog and the dog's job to keep me from touching anything. Well, I don't know where to go with that, so we're just going to move right along. And don't forget, our website also delivers the goods. Go to themodelrailwayshow.com for interesting links to this topic and all of the others we've covered in past interviews. It's like a growing encyclopedia of knowledge. You can find us on Facebook. And that's motion barking in the background to tell us that it's Jim's turn now. His wits have been gathered. The call has been made to Scandinavia. Here's Jim with his guest, Trolls Kirk. Not too long ago, I spoke with Sam Posey about model railroading as an art form. In short, we agreed it could and should be more than just a technical exercise. Like a bronze sculpture or a canvas hanging in a gallery, an artistically executed model railroad should enlighten us, lift us up, and transport us. Trolls Kirk's Coastline Railroad is, in my estimation, one of the premier examples of the magic that can happen when a classical artist brings his eye, his style, and his skill to the hobby of model railroading. Trolls is a Danish-born artist now living in southern Sweden. He has constructed a stunning ON30 layout in a workshed outside his home. He possesses the ability to visualize finished scenes on his layout and sketch them down to the finest details. When built, the layout almost exactly matches the preliminary sketch. But it doesn't end there. Using the same muted colors, Trolls may then do fine art renderings of specific scenes on his layout, all to wondrous effect. If you are not familiar with Trolls' work before, we hope you've taken some time to view it online through the links we've provided. Trolls has produced a DVD demonstrating his techniques. It's called Realistic Color for Railroad Modeling. He's with us now. Trolls, uh, welcome to the Model Railway Show. Thank you, Jim. Not a word of a lie here. I am smitten with your work. It's been years since someone else's layout has excited me the way the quality of work on your coastline has. Thank you. I've been very surprised about all the fuss my layout has generated through the last three years or so. Is it just three years since you started it? Three and a half, actually, since I moved to Sweden. I had begun the sketching before that, but about four years all in all. Well, you work fast and you work well. What attracted you to model railroading, the traditional aspect of building and running miniature trains or the chance to expand your artist repertoire? I was only six years. I got a train set for Christmas and the next day, I was already making paper mache landscapes and didn't run the trains at all. So I'm attracted to modeling landscapes, really, more than trains. Well, you've done it so well, you've really created the atmosphere of the main coast. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, is atmosphere the hardest thing for most non-artists to model? Well, it's hard for artists as well. It's the most difficult thing and what's really removes art from the mundane, the normal stuff. I think it's very, very difficult, but it has always been my main goal, both in my paintings and in my model railroading, of course. Do you ever start a painting over, or for that matter, do you ever start over on a scene on your model railroad because you're not happy with the way it's turning out? No, actually, I do the thinking and the planning in my sketching stage way before I build or paint my paintings. 
everything is done in advance, really. Well, I do think that's what sets you apart from other modelers. I think most of us don't have the ability to sketch what we see in our mind. When we start something, we're basically working from the memory of what we've created in our mind. Do you find that putting these sketches down helps you retain your ideas? Yes, as an artist, it's what I do all the time. I sketch for hours every day, so it's second nature for me to doodle down my thoughts and inner workings. (laughs) Most modelers look at the details in front of them without analyzing what they're looking at. At least I suspect they do. I think that's what I do. An artist, though, is a person who sees the light coming from those details and then duplicates it with color. Can you explain how artists see light, whereas other people don't see it that way? It's difficult. It's very difficult to, to explain what you just do. You know, it's my job. The great French Impressionist Monet once said that he never sees a red roof out in the field, for instance. He sees the red shape he has to paint and the color he has to paint. And I think that's about it. You gain an eye for what is needed where and if it needs a color or a deep shadow to catch the eye. Mm -hmm. That's what I do in paintings and that is what I try to do in model railroads also. Well, I was going to give a plug for your DVD after our conversation, but I think I'm going to throw it in right now. I've already mentioned this. It's Realistic Color for Railroad Modeling. I think if any of our viewers gets a hold of this DVD and watches it, they'll understand what we're trying to talk about because you spend a great deal of time showing how to highlight colors. And I think a perfect example is the way you shade and the way you weather printed walls of brick and windows. I wasn't aware until I watched your video closely that some of the walls that I've been looking at are only two-dimensional. I think your DVD to me is worth it alone just for that, the way that you can take a photographic rendering and then add your artist skill to it and make it look so much better. Would you agree? You know, it's all theater staging, this model railroading. You can't model the real life anyhow. And if you take into account what distance you will look at things, you can cheat a lot when you have to. I paint shadows, for instance, under things because the lighting you have in your layout room isn't always perfect and directional. So I try to always have a direction to the shadows and the lights I put on top of window sills and so on. I've carried this from the paint studio, from my artist studio, of course. The trompe l'oeil was the technical term is called the cheating of the eye. Making it see dimensions that aren't... classical painter's palette of Mm. tricks, really. You don't favor using an airbrush for most model finishes. Why is that? Well, that's quite simple. I worked as an airbrush artist for many years in my younger days and grew to hate it. (laughs) Like everything you despise, the bent needles, the cleaning regimes and so on. So I really hate it. Also, the paint brushes are so much quicker for me and so much more versatile and gives a less elegant finish. I like this slightly worn-down finish you get with the brush. Do acrylic paints make your uh, techniques possible? Would you want to be doing what you're doing, say, in oils? What are the advantages of using acrylics in modeling? Acrylics is what I use in my studio. That's the main reason. I, I know them well, and they're very versatile. You know, if you give them a little time, they will adhere to anything, and they're very easy to correct and blend, and you can use all mix and they never decide the rhythm of things. You can paint white on top of black, for instance. 
You can't do that in oils unless they're bone dry. Now, I think most modelers do things quite literally by the book. They see a technique in a book or a magazine, and they try to duplicate it. They adopt these methods. Would you say that you think outside of the box? Have you as an artist brought methods different than what I might have found in the published information? Oh, yeah. I think I've always been a little to the side of the norm. If a solution for modeling seems obvious, I try to avoid it by all means, simply to get a unique look. That's why I scratch built everything too, because I don't want it to be mainstream. Which brings us, Trolls, to an observation that you made in your DVD. You said modelers should get out into the real world and study what they want to model instead of simply copying other people's work. Do you think copying other people's models of the real thing instead of the real thing itself leads to caricatures? Yeah, sure. But if that's what you want, I have nothing against. I'm never trying to say what is right or wrong. You can do whatever you like, but... My experience is also from painting that you have to go out there and look at how things really are and then make your own impression of that, whether it's a painting or model railroad, which is also a sort of art. Well, you obviously have been out into the real world. I'm guessing, well, I do know you've made trips to the United States because you were part of a kit-building symposium, I think, in 2011 in the U.S. Have you visited the main coast? Are those the scenes that you capture in your mind and take home? I must correct you there. I was going to Boston last year, but I had to stay home because of my health. So I've never been across the Atlantic yet. Have you not? Well, you know, I read the ads and made an assumption because that was a symposium I really had wanted to get to myself and didn't. So you have yet to cross the ocean to see firsthand how well you've duplicated what you've done. Yeah, I hope to go there in 2016 for the next uh, narrow-gauge convention up there. But you never know how health (laughs) or or money works. That's the problem. Well, how do you model Maine from an ocean away? Do you rely on photographs, films? I knew Maine mainly from painters like Andrew Wyeth and Winslow Homer. But then I studied everything I could get or find on the Internet. The best place, I think, is the Library of Congress archives. You have access to millions of photographs from the age you model, and it's amazing if you take your time there. That way I got a picture of how it was back then, and I've looked at sketch pads from artists from that time and so on. Well, I am staggered at what you've done without uh, being there firsthand. Uh, a little while back, uh, Trevor interviewed uh, Paley Soloborg, who has been to the U.S. and done a masterful job. But I think kudos to you, because unlike Paley, you've yet to make the journey. I'll be looking forward to seeing you on this side of the ocean sometime. I think it would be really great to meet you. You've influenced a lot of people to rethink how they go about building their layouts. Did you have any uh, model railroading influences of your own? Oh, of course. John Allen must be mentioned first, of course. He he was a great hero, even when I was a kid. Dave Frary and Bob Hayden's magnificent Thatcher's Inlet, way back in the 80s, even before that, was a big influence. And when George Selyus began his uh, effort, I I was stunned. So he is also a, a hero. And lately, Art Fahey, who has made a beautiful layout of the coast, was the main influence for getting the coastline part of it, Mm -hmm. too. As a modeler myself, Trolls, I'm a big fan of acrylic paints and paper as a modeling medium. I love the fact that you produce such amazing-looking structures using inexpensive materials, balsa wood, matte board, artist papers, and acrylic paints. 
What led you to this technique, and what refinements did you make along the way? I really just took what I had at home. You know, I'm I'm a poor artist. I don't earn a lot of money, and my studio is full of cardboard and high quality papers. So that's where I began. And of course, I did a lot of mistakes. That's the only way you can develop a style is by trial and error. And I can assure you there has been a lot of errors. In the beginning, I used double adhesive carpet tape, for instance, to fix my paper planking. And after half a year, you know, you discover that that glue isn't permanent. So there's a lot of super glued walls out there, too. <laughs> well, I must say, um, the techniques you use, uh, I, I guess I'm thinking that the artist store must be your other primary hobby shop. I found your DVD to be most instructive, both for the painting techniques you illustrate, as well as for showing how few paints people really need for mixing such an infinite array of realistic colors. So for that, I thank you. I might be buying fewer colors in the future. Thank you, Jim. Uh, that's one of the things I wanted to stress when I made that DVD. I had got a lot of questions, you know, from fellow modelers about which colors I use. And they always say, but yeah, I have 200 colors and I never get it right. And that's because you have 200 colors. Americans have a tendency, I think, I'm not trying to offend anyone, to want to have everything ready mixed. You have all these colors called, you know, conifer green and so on, instead of just green or red or blue. And it tends to make you lazy, really, not want, trying to mix a few colors and see what you can get out of it. Trolls, your DVD and this conversation we've just had have been most instructive to me. Before we close this out, I'd like to compliment your wife, Anne, for that lovely little waltz she plays in your DVD, Locos por el Fue. Can you translate that for us? It means something like mad about the bellows. My wife plays the Argentinian bandoneon, the tango instrument, and the tanguero or the tango musicians have an affectionate nickname for their bandoneons, call it the bellows. Well, I can hear those bellows breathing kind of an, from time uh, to time. an ancient accordion. Yes. Well, Trolls Kirk, thanks so much for your inspiration and for joining us here on the Model Railway Show. Thank you, Jim, for inviting me to the show also. I'm glad if I can be of inspiration to other modelers, you know. Well, Jim, we hope our listeners are checking out the links to Troll's Coastline Railroad. They'll find that on our website, themodelrailwayshow.com. I think once they see his work, they'll know what all the fuss is about. Yeah, if you lean to the artistic side of the hobby, I think he's a game changer, much like Malcolm Furlow was, for example, and innovative techniques to doing scenery and painting and all of that. So. Absolutely. Yeah. The other thing we should mention about Trolls is that he's quite active on Facebook. He posts a couple of pictures every day, I think, to his Facebook page. That's something to check out as well. We'll have a link to that as well on the Model railwayshow.com and while you're on facebook be sure to look for us as well you can like our page and join the discussion there and check the Flickr gallery it's continually growing as we talk to guests and they share their photos with us and especially enjoy the workbench photographs and the best way to listen to the show is by signing up for a free podcast subscription you can find us on itunes podcast.com and podfeed.net and you'll never miss an episode time now to wrap up our show we hope today's topics have been able to feed both sides of your brain next time 
time, Jim will welcome in the new year with Brooke Stover, a Michigan modeler who has found unanticipated benefits and delights in his Buffalo Creek and Gauley website. And I'll be talking with James McNabb, a modeler of the Iowa Interstate, about how he's turning a simple layout into a rewarding project. Thanks to the rest of our team, our techie Chris Abbott, webmaster Otto Vondrack, and music meister David Woodhead. We couldn't have handled this past year without you guys. Thanks also to all of our listeners for hanging with us, promoting us, and helping us out with program suggestions. Till next time, I'm Jim Martin. And I'm Trevor Marshall. Thanks for joining us here on the Model Railway Show. Thank you.